Now that we finished the podcast, I feel like we need to redo the intro because it went into a little bit of different direction than what we anticipated. Welcome to a very special episode of the podcast in which we have Nick, who is a lawyer on, and we are going to talk about possible real-life legal implications of things that happened in Bloodborne. Say hi, Nick. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to me babble on about nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and... uh... Like I said, we finished recording this episode, and it's actually really cool. Oh, well, I'm yep. glad. I'm glad it made sense. We learned a lot. Yeah, we did. And Nick, after watching this, how qualified do you think people will be to practice real law? Oh, uh, just as qualified as most lawyers. Okay. Okay. Hi, Richie. Hi, Sin. Hi, Nick. Hi, boss. <laughs> Richie, tell us what we're doing today. Today, we are going to discuss the fishing hamlet with Nick, but we're specifically going to discuss what legal actions could be taken against Bergenworth and the hunters as a result of the fishing hamlet massacre, because Nick is a lawyer. Yay! I think that's the most concise entry you've ever done. Thank you. That was good. It's like we've recorded yeah. this three times already. <laughs> we had practice runs. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's okay. Whenever I gave, back when I was actually practicing, whenever I gave oral arguments, like in federal court, I would always practice over and over again. So this is this is cool. Yeah. We're, we're basically lawyers as well now. <sighs> <laughs> But the, but but as as Eileen says that that has no honor with it. <laughs> oh, burn. Um, okay. So Richie, tell us because you've had a lot of practice. Mm. <laughs> tell us what happened in the fishing hamlet. What happened in the fishing hamlet is that after Willem and the other members of Bergenworth had been looking at what they found in the chalice dungeons, they realized that the key to evolving into a higher form of life wasn't just messing around with blood, it was that your consciousness had to function in a certain way. So he became very obsessed with figuring out, firstly, what was different about the brains, like the structure of the brain of people who were communing with the Great Ones, and also how he could commune with the Great Ones. So through some completely unspecified means. We're not sure what exactly happened. He found out that there was this fishing village and the people there were kind of half human, half fish things. And they worshipped and communed with a great one in the ocean called Cos. So he became fixated on, okay, we have to figure out what is up with these people. So he... This is where it gets confusing again, because we're told that Bergenworth are responsible for what happened, but we, from what we can gather, it was the Hunters. So we don't know if it was Bergenworth sent the Hunters as a proxy thing, or if the uh, Bergenworth were with the Hunters as, like, bodyguards, or Bergenworth kind of, like, joined in or something like that. We don't know exactly what happened, but they went to the Hamlet, they got the fish people to beckon Cos to the surface, they killed Cos, they grabbed Cos's child out of her womb, and they massacred the people in the hamlet and started performing autopsies on them, 
to figure out what it was about their brains that was different. So that's the story of the fishing hamlet. Okay. So, Nick. Indeed. So the hunters went into a fishing hamlet, and they massacred a bunch of people, made holes in their brains. What else, Richie? They uh, cracked their skulls open to, like, search the brains for extra eyes. They gutted and uh, removed a child from cause, and the child died. Yeah. Yeah. Is that legal? Assuming there's any kind of governing law, the answer would be no. <laughs> <laughs> um, to, to kind of address that, I'm, 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 for purposes of this discussion, I'm consuming that we're we're going by American tort and criminal law and international law, of course, as it exists, yes. you know. Yes. Um, because <laughs> yes. in in the world of Bloodborne, the law is seems to be more or less these days what the Healing Church says it is, at least in the Arnhem area. <laughs> so. Uh-huh. So, you know, um, so I'm just going to assume that American tort and criminal law and international law, of, like genocide and stuff, mm. are going to apply to this. Um, that, that, that's actually a pretty somber way to go. In real life, that's probably what would what would apply. This would be treated as like a human rights crime of genocide uh, in a nutshell. But we can go into more detail, obviously, because the, the private law side of American tort law and criminal law is much more fun to talk about. So. Okay, let's do that. Uh, yeah. Um, there are quite a few crimes and torts that this might fall under, and I'll just give a bit of context because I didn't know what a tort was until I went to law school. You'd hear you'd hear people talk about tort reform, this and that, and I'm like, well, what's a tort? Uh, and only a, not until my first day of tort class did I finally understand what a tort was. <laughs> Is it like a really fancy tart? Yeah, I was thinking it sounds like a dessert. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it's a particularly delicious dessert mm. with uh, notes of hazelnut and <laughs> with the. Um, yeah, what's that? What's that hazelnut stuff that they sell in Germany all the time? Nutella. Uh, I love Nutella, but anyway, they sell it here too. I mean, too, they sell it everywhere. <laughs> well, they do. The reason I said Germany, I don't know why it's really popular in the United States too. But I said Germany because one of my uh, one of my law school friends got detained at an airport in Germany. I think because some something having to do with Nutella. They must have thought it was something else. So he got detained. <laughs> I don't know. So that's why Germany came to mind because he was. He was on his way to like this big international arbitration moot court competition and got detained, I think, for something having to do with Nutella. <laughs> did he talk his way out of it? He Apparently he did, because he wound up going to the competition and coming back unscathed, <laughs> so he somehow got out of it. Nice. His legal training served him well. <laughs> uh, for once. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, but yeah, no, so... So what a tort is basically is it, it it's much like a crime. You know, it requires an act, culpability, and a result. Except that instead of the government prosecuting you for it, somebody can sue you for it. You know, uh, you know, classic tort is like a car ac- a car accident. You're not paying attention. You hit a pedestrian at a crosswalk. Suit. Uh, right. But there are there are others, obviously. You know, but um, so th- this the massacre at fishing hamlet falls under all sorts of things. Um. Probably the most obvious one, assuming there were someone left alive to sue, like maybe some child of the fishing hamlet might have escaped the massacre and grown up and hired a lawyer. Uh, probably the most obvious cause of action would be a wrongful death suit. Uh-huh. Uh, it, basically, what that is, is you, someone dies because of a tort, uh, either a negligent or an intentional tort. And to kind of back up, because uh, you know, I have experience explaining this stuff to law students, but it's kind of convoluted. In essence, um, it's okay, we, Nick. We're lore hunters. That's right. <laughs> uh, it's like when when I 
when I say tort and when I say say mental states, I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. Most of the time, to commit a tort and you know be successfully sued for it, you need to do something to cause a result with a certain mental state, and that's another term for culpability. It's like how blameworthy your conduct is. Um, and in tort, there's negligence, there's recklessness, and there's intent, and each of those gets progressively worse and more blameworthy. Like negligence is simple carelessness. I mean, I could talk about that for hours with law students, but this discussion will say negligence is simple carelessness, like you know, classic. Yeah, but in this case, yeah, it wouldn't even apply to the fishing hamlets because it wasn't an accident. Right. No, it was. This was deliberate. Um, clearly, and then recklessness is worse than that, but not quite as bad as intent. It's like you, you know, there's a let's say you know there's a serious risk that somebody's going to get hurt because of what you're doing, and you just disregard it. Like a classic example is like drag racing on the highway. You don't mean to hurt anybody. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily know that somebody's going to get hurt, but you know, you know, there's a really good chance somebody's going to get hurt, and you do it anyway. Uh-huh. Um, so that's recklessness, and then intent is either no- knowledge or purpose. So you either know somebody's going to get hurt to you know like a 99.9% degree of certainty, or you intend to hurt somebody. Um, and either one of those will qualify as intent for purpose. And so cl- clearly, what the what the Bergenworth scholars and hunters did here was intentional. You know, even by even by this convoluted legal definition. That I- mm-hmm. That I've tried yeah. to put forth. Um, yeah, so that, that's basically it's where you do something with the right culpability and cause a particular result most of the time. And so in, in a wrongful death suit, if you've either intentionally or negligently killed someone, their estate can sue you, not on their behalf, but on behalf of the people who stood to benefit from your continued life. Like, say, you know, some poor child, his parents are massacred in the fishing hamlet. He somehow escapes. And he gets a lawyer. And so he, he stood to benefit from his parents' guidance and mentorship and provision for his physical needs and so forth. So he would sue to recover his own losses from their death. Well, that kind of is what happens. Yeah. 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 With the orphan of cause. Well, yeah, the, exactly. The orphan, assuming it weren't dead, which it's, it's sort of un, in this weird undead state, I guess. Well, I, I think that it it sort of bypassed the formal legal system and just cursed pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, which, you know, which is much more practical and expedient uh, thing. <laughs> well, hang on, hang on. This raises another question of like a lot of the people in Yarnum are cursed because of what Bergenworth and the Hunters did, but they themselves weren't culpable That's for right. the Hamlet. So, could the citizens of Yarnum? actually sue the hand. Uh, well yeah they could and if and, and <laughs> yeah to, to kind of to kind of cut through a lot of legal convolution uh if bergenworth had a reason if bergenworth could have reasonably foreseen that the people of yarnum would have been cursed then there's a good chance the people of yarnum would win oh hmm. you know because a lot of a lot of tort and criminal law comes down to whether you could foresee that your actions would produce this result yeah. oh i see so then the fishing hamlet could sue Bergenworth, and the Yarnum people could sue Bergenworth. Yeah, and of course, that's that's uh, at this point we're getting into large sums of liability. <laughs> You've got the whole city of Yarnum. Yeah. W- what can Bergenworth do at this point then? Because they're all either piles of slime or flies. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I guess we, I guess, assuming Willem is still coherent, sitting by the lake, maybe he would have to. Well. He, yeah, I mean, this kind of assumes Bergenworth is still a functional institution that, that exists and can be sued in some capacity. Uh, oh, it's pretty functional. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Do you think that's why they, like, have the password gate and everything? Because they just don't want to be oh. served. That's it. 
That, that must be it, because a process server comes to the gate and says, hey, I'm here to serve a complaint. But... <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know the password. And then he starts mumbling, you know, whatever he mumbles after he says the password. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that's exactly why. Uh, because, oh, well, well, gosh, the, the rules on service of process I could also talk about all day, but no one will want to listen to <laughs> So, okay, let me ask you. So then the hunters themselves were the ones that killed the fish people. But That's right. if the scholars of Bergenworth were not there, is Bergenworth still responsible or are the hunters also responsible? The answer to both questions is yes. Um, on one of two grounds. It's either what lawyers call vicarious liability or direct liability. And th those get a little bit convoluted, but Let's say, imagine you own like a fleet of delivery trucks, mm -hmm. and you hire full-time drivers to operate the trucks. One driver is, is negligent, you know, hits somebody at an intersection. The injured person can successfully sue both the driver and the employer, even though the employer had nothing directly to do with the accident. Because mm -hmm. of your employment relationship with the driver, you're subject to liability for injuries that kind of arise out of your enterprise, even if you didn't directly have anything to do with it. Mm -hmm. I see. But if you say... Let's say you tell the driver to go do something that's wrong, then you're directly responsible as if you've done it. And the driver is also responsible. Exactly. Okay. So there's so vicarious means you didn't do anything, it's just you have a relationship with someone who did and therefore you're liable like an employer. Or direct liability means you somehow participated in it. And I think clearly Bergenworth sort of instigated this whole thing or somehow participated in it. So I think they're liable right along with the hunt. Uh -huh. Well the the Priest in the Hamlet is specifically cursing Bergenworth. Yep. He doesn't mention the hunters. Blasphemous murderers, blood-crazed fiends. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very uh, articulate curse. Is he, like, practicing his testimony? It sounds like he might be. He says it over yeah. and over, right? Yeah. Like he's rehearsing for one of these days when, when, I, <laughs> when I serve him with the subpoena to come testify against Bergenworth. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He'll know exactly what to say. Of course, the, the bit about bottomless curse seems improvised, you know. <laughs> Bottomless curse, bottomless sea. Uh, but nevertheless, mm. it was well delivered, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so Bergenworth's responsible. If they, if, if either the hunters were working for them and they kind of knew what was going on or if they sanctioned it. And I think, clear to me, they sanctioned it. Mm -hmm. So they're responsible. Um, and if they were actually put on trial for war crimes, it'd be the same thing. If you order it to be done, it's just as if... Well, actually, this wouldn't be a war crime. It'd be genocide, but that's a lot of fine distinction, I guess, that we can maybe save for a little bit later on in the podcast because we're still talking about crimes and torts. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so wrongful death, you're kind of suing on your own behalf because you lost something because the person died. Um, like said, parents suing because the, the children were murdered. Um, and this actually brings an interesting kind of real life example to mind. If you, I don't know if you guys, how much attention you guys paid to the OJ Simpson case when it was big here in America. Um, you know, OJ Simpson, former football star, he's put yeah. on trial for, yeah, murdering his ex-wife and boyfriend. He gets acquitted for the murder, but then the family sues him for wrongful death and prevails. And a lot of people are like, well, how can that be? He was acquitted of the murder, but then he's found liable for their deaths in a civil suit, right? Yeah. And the the difference is the what what lawyers call the standard of proof. It's like how strong a showing you have to make, right? Uh, how convincing the evidence has to be. It's like for a crime, it's beyond a reasonable doubt, which is very high. You have to show a very high likelihood that the person committed the crime. It's not absolute. It's not 100%. But it's more in the realm of like some people say 85, some people say 95. We'll, we'll just take the mean and say it's like a 90%. Good. Mm -hmm. But right. in a civil suit, 
you only have to show a 51% likelihood, more likely than not. It's Mm -hmm. called a preponderance of the evidence. So, you know, even if the California prosecutors couldn't show that it was like a 90% likelihood that he killed them for a conviction, the family was evidently able to show a 51% likelihood, which means he's, he was liable in civil terms, even though he wasn't criminally liable for it. Um, So that's the reason why OJ could be found civilly, but not criminally liable. And it'd kind of be the same here. If it's a civil suit, you only have to show more likely than not that Bergenworth had something to do with it. But if you're trying to convict him, it's more like 90%. What if the fishing hamlet takes Bergenworth to Judge Judy? What is the burden of proof there? Uh, Judge Judy's whims, whether she's had coffee. <laughs> <laughs> and, if she, and, and, if she's, and if she's short on sleep, she hasn't had snacks or coffee, look out. <laughs> <laughs> I love Judge Judy. Yeah, me too. I used to watch her all the time. Oh yeah, law doesn't. You like if you ever, if you watch, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. Charlie says bird law is not governed by reason. Um, <laughs> Judge Judy is governed by reason, but not law. I guess we'll say that. <laughs> Richard, do you know who Judge Judy is? Yes, Judge Judy used to be on when I was in high school. Did you watch it? And I did not realize it was. I I did because it was on Good. like. So in the um in the afternoons during school holidays, and I didn't realize it was still going. Is it still going to this day? Because I I associate it with like the late nineties. Well, it was on then, but she's still on TV. Yeah. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah, she's still going, man. She used to be like a she used to be like a family court judge in New York. Like she she would order deadbeat dads to pay child support and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then she got her TV show, and of course that's much more lucrative than being an actual judge. So. <laughs> <laughs> She went to do that instead. But she actually was a real judge. Must be less stressful as well. I'm sure it's much more fun. Um, like with, when you're a real judge, you. Well, I, I clerked for a, a United States bankrupt judge. And so I, a lot of times, whatever decision she, make, she made would be what I recommended. And so there's a real weight of responsibility that comes with knowing that real people's well-being depends on what you decide, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but on, in the TV show, it's like, Okay, you're getting flown out to California, and this sh- whatever damages she awards the show is probably going to pay anyway. Yeah. So nothing's <laughs> at stake. You know? yeah. <laughs> what would it be called? You know how um, you have like the people versus whatever. Well, in a, in a civil suit, it would. What would probably happen is the survivors of the fishing hamlet would come together in a class action against Bergenworth, most likely. Um. And, and class actions are actually kind of tough to maintain because you have to show a lot of different specific things for the judge to authorize a class action. But basically, it's if usually it's if one defendant has done more or less the same wrong thing to a bunch of different people, it's deemed more efficient if they all come together and sue as one instead of having a, a bunch of different trials covering basically the same fact. Because um, then you have a risk that different juries will find inconsistently, and so. You know, you could have Bergenworth getting off in front of one jury and getting held liable in front of another, and we don't want that. So it's just everybody comes together and sues in the class act, um, which means there'll be one named plaintiff, you know, ex-child of the fishing hamlet to represent everybody else. And the lawyers will make out like bandits, and the people of the fishing hamlet will get like a box of cereal. <laughs> Do you think the uh, the child of the fishing hamlet in this case is the orphan of cause? I mean, why not? At this point, <laughs> yeah. That's the impression I get, is because that seems to be the source of the curse. And when you get rid of the orphan, it's like, well, that's that's that thing. Yeah, you know, it's, like, it's all yeah. good now. <laughs> mm. 
Yeah, no, yeah, they, so it'd be like a orphan of cost v Bergenworth. Okay. And the hunters et al, <laughs> which means <laughs> which et al is kind of a Latin abbreviation for basically and everybody else, you know. Cool. So specifically, which hunters would uh, would have been involved in this massacre, Richie? Well, we know it was German because he is tormented by the orphan. Right. Uh, probably Maria because she throws away her Rakuyo in the well there, and she seems to have left a little flower for cause. Mm-hmm. And we don't know who else. Hmm. Maybe I guess Ludwig because he's there in the nightmare. I don't know. Maybe he. Oh, I don't know because I, I, the way they explain Ludwig is that he's recruited like after Germa. Yeah. No, yeah. he's not. So I think Ludwig. <laughs> I'm a Ludwig professional. Mm-hmm. He's not recruited after German. Okay. He opens his own workshop after German, okay. but it doesn't mean he's not recruited before. Uh, yeah, but we don't know though. Like, it could yeah, be, it could be anything. No, no, you said he's though, recruited yeah. after German, which is not true. Yeah. Well, he was like the first church hunter, right? And that came after German's workshop. Yeah, yeah but he yeah, could yeah. he could have still been. Uh, yeah, yeah, he could yeah. he could have been recruited like officially by the church afterward, but he might have been at the hamlet. Yeah. Like he, he might have hunted yeah. like under German's too before that, maybe. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. German was the first hunter. Period. So I guess that would kind of make sense. Yeah. Um, they wouldn't have put Ludwig in charge of the church hunters if he didn't already know something about hunting, which he would have to learn from Gehrman. There we go! Oh, oh, look! Nick is team sim completely! Oh, I'm just thinking out loud, I don't... <laughs> no, 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 Nick. You can't take that back. Oh, sorry, Richard, I'm just thinking out loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Whenever I think out loud, bad things happen. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. And then, um, another thing... That's a, a lot of people confuse with wrongful death is called a sur- survival action. Um, like historically, as a matter of United States common law, if you died, your lawsuit died with you. But most states have, and probably, you know, I'd say Canada and Australia have something like this too. It's called a survival action in which your estate can sue not only, they can institute not only a wrongful death suit on behalf of the people who survive you, but also a survival action in your place as if they were you to recover on your behalf for the benefit of your estate. So there'd be a survival action on behalf of all the dead villagers um, to recover, you know, in their right, the pain and suffering that they endured before death. And I imagine it was pretty horrific, you know, you're getting butchered in your heads, getting cut open and all this stuff. Yeah. So the damages would run pretty high in a survival action um, as opposed to wrongful death. A lot of even law students get these two confused, but, you know, wrongful death is on behalf of the survivors. Whereas a survival action is on behalf of the person who didn't survive. So it's kind of ironically named. It's like, you know, why, is a dr- why do you drive on a parkway and park on a driveway kind of thing? <laughs> but yeah, so the, basically it's a wrongful death and a survival action. And there'd be two types of damages, compensatory and punitive. I'm sure you're all familiar with punitive damages because of all the sensational stories of, you know. Yeah. Six fig- seven, eight figure punitive damage awards from, you know, tiny injuries. And the, this, the distinction between the two is for compensatory damages, you have to for every dollar you recover, you have to link it to some specific type of harm. Um, classic is medical bills and stuff like that, but there's also like emotional pain, which is, of course, harder to quantify. Uh, but you have to show that some suffering to justify the award. Um, but punitive, punitive damages are awarded to punish people for especially culpable conduct. Like basically, if you acted with intent, right, that like we were talking about earlier. Um, that justifies punitive damages because that's especially blameworthy. It, it's not connected to harm. It's just to punish somebody. And mm-hmm. you might as well give the fruits of the punishment to the victim, 
because who else, right? It's either the government or the victim. May as well give it to the victim. Right. And it, it and because the general rule in the U.S. is that the winner doesn't get attorney's fees, punitive damages are kind of like a backdoor way to give the plaintiff her lawyer's bills if she wins. You know, mm. it's, it, that's right. the function. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and they, there's almost no limit to how large the punitive damage award can be. There are some limits on it. Uh, like the Supreme Court is articulated as a matter of constitutional law, but those are, in most cases, those don't even come into play. Uh, so it could be it could be pretty large. And in this case, you know, because a, a village full of people was massacred for really no good reason, I think you're looking at you're looking at some pretty hefty damages on the punitive side. <laughs> Not to mention mm-hmm. the you know the compensatory side. Um, but yeah, no. So he, we, we, I would love to represent the Hamlet in this case because I'd make out like a bandit. <laughs> Do you think the Hamlet would have a good chance of winning? Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, uh, yeah. You could point to the existence of the nightmare. You could have testimony from, like, <laughs> testimony from the orphan. Uh, if if Casa's spirit is somehow out there in the cosmos, you could have testimony from her. Mm-hmm. And anyone who might have survived the massacre at the Hamlet. Okay, but l- let's say like you were a real scumbag though, and you wanted to defend Bergenwood. Ah, yep. <laughs> what kind of arguments would you attempt to make? Ah, oh, dear, that's tough. Uh, you know, for if if like for one thing, if I was representing Bergenworth specifically, I would try to put distance between Bergenworth and the hunt who right. directly perpetrated it. <laughs> like, if I could show that like nope, that no scholar from Bergenworth was there, and the hunter said, "Well, they told us to do it," you know, I would do it. Everything to kind of try to show that, yeah, there's no connection between Bergenworth and the hunt. Yeah. Because it, there's probably not like a paper trail or something exactly. that they could follow. And if I were yeah. a real scumbag, I'd say, uh, you know, you know, Willem, if these papers somehow got lost, I think uh, it would be really fortuitous and <laughs> beneficial. <laughs> that, that's, that's totally unethical, and I could get disbarred and maybe convicted for that. <laughs> but if I were like, you know, Saul Goodman type lawyer, really unethical. Yeah. That's what I would do. I'd be like, y- you know, Willem, there's all these papers that connect us to the hunters. Um, I'm thinking that would re- really help us if those couldn't be found. <laughs> like, oh, I gotcha. And he doesn't have, he's blind, but he'd never let wink at me. Like, oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> wink at me from underneath that thing that covers his eyes. <laughs> so, yeah, I would be like, let's get rid of this paper. So, I, that would basically be the only way to get them out of it, would be to put distance between them and the people who directly perpetrated it. Because um, if you know if it really had nothing to do with it, they can't be held liable, and then it would fall on the hunters if my defense were to succeed. And let's say you were to represent the hunters. Ooh, yeah. Well, that's tough because they're the ones who directly perpetrated it. Uh, I would just kind of hope that everyone was massacred and whoever was left couldn't testify. Like you couldn't summon the orphans. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> o- okay, but like, how does blood drunkenness? factor into intent. Well, yeah, that, that would be really the only credible defense. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I would do. <laughs> Richie! That's what I would no, do. I, no, I think you're right. It, uh, assuming, assuming that, you know, it's proven beyond doubt that the hunters were the ones who actually perpetrated it. The only way to kind of escape... Well, you see, that's the thing. In a civil suit, that doesn't really help. To show that you were crazy or... Right. You know, as, as long as you were capable of forming a thought. You can be held liable in, right. in tort. Um, so it wouldn't like there, there's a case that every law student studies, and the facts are something like this: they, like this guy believed that this guy assaults someone, right, or actually commits battery against someone, dude, sneaks up on someone and beats him up because he believes that they're like Darth Vader trying to kill him or something, uh-huh. right? 
And of course, when they're sued, they try to say that, oh, well, I was crazy. I wasn't responsible for my actions. And the judge is like, no, you were capable of forming a thought. You formed the intent to beat this person up. That's all that matters. Mm. Uh, but as a matter of criminal law, though, that's a little bit different. Um, if they were really blood drunk and couldn't sort of appreciate that what they were doing was wrong, then that might offer like a, a defense based upon a mental disease or deep, you know. And there are all sorts of different rules in the United States about how to establish that. But if, you know, basically they couldn't appreciate that what they were doing was wrong, then that might get them off of a criminal charge, maybe. Um, I was just thinking also about, like, let's say the healing church, right? If they intentionally infect you with blood that turns you into a beast, but that only happens because you're not sufficiently enlightened. <laughs> <laughs> Who is really to blame in that? Like, is that that's really more your fault? I think. Well, it's like in real life, if you're dispensing like a medicine and you know that it's there's like a fifty percent chance it's going to kill somebody, then you can be held liable for that, even if the reason for the death is sort of intrinsic to the person. You know, like right. if you if you like if your medicine only kills stupid people, you're still liable if you know that half the population is stupid yet you're dispensing this drug anyway. <laughs> so even though it will only kill Richie. <laughs> because this is the third attempt to record, we should point out that Sin slept for like two hours last night. <laughs> so she's in an extremely bad mood. <laughs> Just a little bit. Her cat kept her awake. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm Poor drinking Corvo. my first cup of coffee. Things are looking up for you, Richie. You know, I'm, I'm actually surprised that I'm not babbling incoherently because I've only had one coffee, and usually I'm at two by now, at least. <laughs> well, this is this comes natural to you, Nick. Ah, well, awesome. Knocking it out of the park. Not. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, you know what? What's up? Well, since Richie went a little off topic and talked about the healing church and poison, um, what about the situation in Castle Kinehurst? Oh, well, to me, clearly that's genocide. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess it would be, oh, well, wait a minute. In this case, it would be a similar thing. But instead of the Bergenworth hunters and uh, Bergenworth, it would be the executioners and the healing church. Right. Yeah. I know there are those on our Discord who side with the executioners. I just don't see how that's morally defensible. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think it's basically the same. Uh, whatever I said about you know the village hamlet and Bergenworth probably applies with equal force, if not greater force, to the vile bloods and the execute. Um, what about Annalise though? Because she can't die. She can't die, but she can be hurt. Like for example, when right. Alfred comes and pounds her to mud. Um, assuming the because I think once you take her to the altar of despair, like time reverses, so she may not even remember what happened. Um, yeah. But uh, assuming that the, the queenly flesh could talk, you could put that blob of flesh on the stand and she could testify that yeah this fool with a golden pyramid <laughs> on his head came and pounded me into mush and when he spoke it sounded like a doting fanboy so I know it was out <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know how Ligarius he kind of just keeps her prisoner what can he also be charged with for that oh yes I brushed up on this um, well as a matter of law it, criminal law would be kidnapping um Basically, when you treat a person like a movable object and just move them around and, and keep them, hold them against the will, that's kidnapping. Uh, second only to murder in terms of private law offenses as far as how severe it is. Oh, wow. Um, 
Yeah, kidnapping, at least in the U.S., kidnapping is a very serious offense. Uh, some states have imposed the death penalty for it, at least at certain points in our history, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but yeah, in terms of tort law, it's called false imprisonment. Um, <laughs> there, there are a lot of funny examples I use to teach law students false imprisonment. But the, the essence of it is, you know, if you, you can find somebody to a bounded area, which means their freedom of movement is limited in all directions for some appreciable length of time, and get this, this is how lawyers conceptualize things. They're either aware of the confinement or harmed by it, not both. You either know you're being confined or you're harmed by it. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny that at the, you know, the pretzel flips that people, that professors do to try to test the, was harmed by it, but didn't know about it. (laughs) Aspect of it. But usually you know about it when you're confined. Um, Like, it doesn't have to be physical barriers. Uh, it could be like uh, moral pressure to remain in one, not moral pressure, but like societal pressure to remain in one place. Like classic example that I'd like to use is, uh, let's say you're you're showering at the gym, right? You're mm-hmm. naked, you're showering. And let's say, I don't know, somebody comes and, like, let's say Richard comes and steals your clothes out of your locker, right? <laughs> you fucking bully. <laughs> <laughs> well, in that case, you could leave the shower area and go into the rest of the gym, but you'd be naked. So you'd be humiliated, right? So as, as a practical matter, you can't leave the locker room. So that's false imprisonment, too. It's like you've been effectively confined to that area. <laughs> so a prank could get you in a lot of trouble. Yeah, it could. Huh. Uh, I think a lot of the things people do, each, do to each other as pranks are actionable as torts that people just don't realize it or they just let it pass because it was a prank. You know? Oh, wow. Let's say you, you lock your friend in a garage as a prank. Well, that's false imprisonment. You could be sued for that. You know? So when I tell Richard, you better be in your chair recording by 9 a.m. tomorrow, I swear to God, that could be false imprisonment because I'm like imprisoning him in that chair. Well, they, yeah, oh, if you yeah, they threaten somebody with physical harm and they capitulate and remain in the area, that could be false imprisonment. Yeah. Oh, damn. <laughs> Let's hope Richard doesn't know how to reach a lawyer. Or, or it's like if, yeah. or, or if like Richard grabs hold of, holds a gun to Corvo's head, saying, you leave, this, you leave this room, I'm going to shoot Corvo. Oh, my you know, God. By some means, you can find somebody to a limited area of your mm-hmm. choosing against their will. That's false imprisonment. And so since he's held her there for Lord knows how long, you know, hundreds mm-hmm. of years, however long it's been, yeah. uh, that's a uh, clearly egregious case of false imprisonment to me. Yeah. Too very very long well, indeed. <laughs> what, what about okay? Here's 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 one that we haven't talked about in another like healing church fucks everything up situation. <laughs> that would be old Yana. Oh dear. Oh god. Because yeah. it's very heavily implied that the healing church deliberately infected old Yana, but they never come out and say it. Right. So like, say we got like Vadi or someone to make a video about how the church infected old Yana. How much evidence would he have to put in there? To make it convincing. Ah, oh, dear. Enough to show that it's more likely than not that they did. Because um, mm-hmm. remember that. Remember, in a tort suit, it's a much more lenient standard of proof than in a criminal case. So all you have to show is that a fifty-one percent chance that the healing church did that, and they could be held liable for it. Even if there's not enough victim of a crime, you can still prevail in a civil suit. So. Oh, so, yeah. let me. Yeah, go on. Oh no, yeah. So it's just it's just the fifty-one percent. That's the magic number in tort. So I have a question about something that that is now seemingly complicated. So Lawrence and Gurman summon mm-hmm. the Moon Presence, and then the Moon Presence traps Gurman in the dream until Lawrence gets her a baby. Right, which apparently will never happen because Lawrence turned into the bloodletting beast and we killed him. <laughs> yeah, 
So, who can sue who here? I see that's a well, the supernatural aspect makes it a little complicated. Um, yeah, and also they do seem to have drawn up a formal contract in which German is collateral. Yeah, that, basically, yeah, yeah. I mean, in you know, in real life, you know, a human being can't be collateral or you know, movable. You did like movable property, uh, but let's assume they can. <laughs> Just for, for the sake of discussion, we'll assume that okay, that's permissible. Yeah. I mean, if if you yeah, false imprisonment's not a tort, or kidnapping's not a crime if it's consensual. But there comes a point, you know, what reasonable people would understand the scope of the consent to be, even on a contractual basis. Um, like if it, if Gehrman's been trapped in in the dream so long that nobody could have anticipated it. Then at some point the consent would effectively expire, and the moon presence might be liable for false. Assuming you could sue effectively a deity, you know, <laughs> <laughs> the the moon presence would be liable for false imprisonment. Okay. There is a movie called The Man Who Sued God, which I assume is maybe based on a true story. I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, hang on. Let's see how how did that play. I mean, out? good luck. You know, good luck collecting. <laughs> yeah, that did happen. I'm pretty sure. Um, I mean, it was a fool's errand, obviously, but I guess the guy was just trying to make a point, whatever the point was. You know. Okay, so Lawrence is supposed to bring the moon presence the baby, but he never does. Can the moon presence sue someone in that case? Well, if anything, it'd probably be for breach of contract, I would think. Hmm. Like, you, you promised me a baby. Now, it may, it may not have been time-bound. They may not have set a, a specific time limit on it. Um, but when 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 the parties to a contract don't specify a deadline, a lot of times courts will interpret the contract to re- specify a reasonable time, mm-hmm. and you know whatever a reasonable time is, you know that's just for the court to decide. Um, mm-hmm. And then so, assuming that you know the contract didn't specify a time, if Lawrence has been gone for an unreasonably long time, then the moon presence might have a valid action for breach of contract. But then you know Lawrence died trying to fill the contract, mm. and so. But even then, even in that case, the Moon Presence could still probably sue Lawrence's estate for breach of contract. They, because like, the, if the contract didn't necessarily stipulate that death was a, you know, a way out, then in real life, death is not necessarily a way out of your contractual obligation. Huh. Um, well, that raises an interesting point about how the Hunter's Nightmare works. Because if you can die, but then your soul is trapped for eternity in a hellscape. Yeah, yeah. Can you sue that? Well, I mean, you know... Honestly, I, I think so because, like in tort and in criminal law, you know the doctrine of self-defense. You can do things that would otherwise be unlawful to defend yourself from, like an ongoing crime or tort, right? But this hunter's nightmare is retaliation. That's not, and retaliation is actionable even if you did something wrong to provoke. You know, so despite the fact that the hunters did all these gnarly things and killed all these people, um, the hunter's nightmare seems clearly meant to just punish them and retaliate against them. So I think the hunters might have a cause of action against cost. Yes. Oh, plot twist! <laughs> Ta-da! Because uh, Simon specifically says that, like, he has nothing to do with this, but he's still cursed because of what his forefathers did. Yeah, and, and that's that's not even retaliation. Yeah. That's just malice at yeah. that point. Oh, so then Simon can sue cause? I think so, yeah. And probably the orphan, too, because the orphan seems to be sort of Whatever, like, the moon presence is to the hunter's dream, the orphan seems to be to the nightmare. To me, you know. like I I just looked it up, and someone did attempt to sue God once and won by default because God didn't show up in court. (laughs) That that makes sense, yep. 
Yeah, that, that's called a default judgment. Yeah, if somebody sues you and you don't show up, then a lot of times what will happen is a judgment of liability will be entered against you, which means for purposes of the case, you're deemed to have done whatever you've been accused of. And then the court will hold a separate hearing to determine how much you have to pay based on. I just thought, oh, hang on. Here's a really interesting one. A guy in Romania was convicted of murder and then he filed a lawsuit against God because he had been baptized. And he said if the baptism had worked, he would not have been a murderer. Oh. Also, if it had actually purged the devil from him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He said, yeah, he said the baptism was a binding contract and God did not, God had failed to keep him from the devil. I'll bet God didn't show up for that trial either, did he? <laughs> yeah, it says uh, it was dismissed because God's neither an individual nor a company and therefore not subject to civil court jurisdiction. That's right. He's not a natural person or God is a deity, not a natural person or a, a corporation. <laughs> Of course, these days there are so many types of entities. We say, among lawyers, we say juridical person, which means basically, you know, an artificial person established as a, as a legal matter, corporation, mm-hmm. or a limited liability company, or a limited liability partnership, or get this, a limited liability limited partnership, which is a distinct thing from a limited liability partnership, which is a distinct thing from a limited partnership. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, these are the things we lawyers sit around and come up with. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, okay. Let me ask you. You know how Eileen is the hunter of hunters? Yep. Is what she's doing okay? Uh, hunting people down and killing them who haven't done anything to her? No, no, not at all. <laughs> well, no. She, what well, it, but what happens yeah. is, right, if she... At the end of her questline, if you let her murder Henrik, then she becomes blood drunk. That's right. Right. So, like, how... But then if you she doesn't murder Henrik, she's not blood drunk. So, like, she doesn't seem to be in control when she's blood drunk. I, mean, I think it goes back to that distinction between, like, if she really is blood drunk and her mind's not working right, that may get her off as a matter of criminal law, but... Yeah. From the defendant's point of view, though, being found not guilty by reason of insanity is not much better than being convicted. Because once you're found not guilty by reason of insanity, you're probably going to be civilly committed to, like, a, you know, a mental institution or something. And they can hold you there for longer than you would have been locked up in prison had you been convicted. Because it's however long they deem it necessary for you to have sort of regained your faculties and not be a danger to others. So it's like, let's say you would have been sent to prison for 15 years for assault, but you, you're you found not guilty by reason of insanity. They could keep you locked up for 20 years until they determine that you're sane. Oh, <laughs> you wow. So you may not even be better off to be found not guilty by reason of insanity. Because, not that you, you know, clearly you're dangerous. They're not just going to let you walk around. You know, but she only attacks mostly blood drunk hunters, so she's actually doing something good. Well, here's the thing: if the blood drunk hunter is in the process of trying to murder somebody, mm-hmm. then what she's doing is called defense of others, and it's just like self defense, except that you're defending somebody else. Mm-hmm. So you can kill someone who's actively trying to kill someone else, like in the process of it, right? Because that's just like self defense. But if she's just tracking these people down and killing them, and they're not actively trying to kill someone else at that moment, then it's murder, just like any other murder would. Oh, I see. Because, like, defense is permitted, retaliation is not. It's a fine distinction, but it's a very important one, you know. Mm -hmm. So, if she knows that a hunter committed a crime, like he was blood drunk at one time and killed someone, she should call the police. Yeah. Well, well, in the United States, a private citizen can make an arrest, uh, but you have to be right about it. It's like, if you're a police officer, you can kind of make a reasonable mistake about whether the person has committed a crime or not, uh, or whether a crime was committed and whether that person did it. 
But if you're just a private citizen, you better be right. Or else you're liable for a crime and a tort if you arrest someone and they didn't actually do anything. Oh, wow. Um, so, so most citizens don't arrest others. Because <laughs> <laughs> you, you, might, you might meet with resistance, you know, yeah. like if this is a really bad person, <laughs> you, know, you might meet with resistance and you might get hurt, you might get killed. Um, but yeah, so a private citizen can use force to lawfully arrest someone who actually has committed a crime on certain uh, but it's very rarely done for a reason. Yeah, I saw it in movies where it's like, you're under citizen's arrest or something. Yeah. And yeah. technically that's that's lawful. And if the person's a dangerous felon trying to flee, then even a private citizen might be able to use deadly force to stop him from getting away. But this is very rare. Uh, mm -hmm. But it has to be an actively dangerous felon actively fleeing. You mm -hmm. know, so it, it, that's a very fine distinction. Like if the person reaches a point of safety and gets away, at that point the chase is over. And once the chase is over, the right to use force ends. So... Huh. For a private citizen, at least. And, and, and unless the officer has a warrant, also for a police officer. Unless, well, it, it, no, because it, basically, it, if there's probable cause to believe the person has committed like a felony or a more serious crime, at least, then the officer can arrest you as long as they know about the information, have reason to believe you did it. Um, but for a private citizen, there, there's no reasonable belief. There's no ground for a mistake. You have to be right. And that's why most people, I don't think, do citizen's arrest, because there's such a risk that you'll be held liable if you're wrong. Uh -huh. Am I making sense? Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. this, this, is, this is convoluted stuff. <laughs> this is the most intelligent podcast we've ever done. Oh, but, well, then we're in, we're in bad shape. Then. <laughs> 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 I'm just kidding. I, I think I think they're all. I, honestly, I think Richard's so good at explaining the lore. I just love to listen to it and the. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, he, I thought of another another possibly strange situation. Yeah. Okay, Dura. I was right. just thinking of Dura. Yeah. yeah. Dura knows that if you die, you'll just come back to life again. Right. Because he specifically says, like, you're still going to dream. Give it some thought, yeah. So next time you dream, give it some thought. So he is technically killing you, but also he knows you won't actually die. That's right. Yeah, so how would that work out? So at that point, um, kind of because if he knows you're going to come back, then I don't think it's like homicide or anything like that, because yeah. death has an. Real death has an element of finality to it, and if you know the person is going to come back, then I don't think you're liable for like wrongful death on the civil side or homicide on the criminal side. Um, but that's not to say that you or Drew won't be liable for like assault and battery, like depending on whoever provoked the confrontation. Usually, it's it's us, I guess. Well, no, Drew fired upon you. Well, but, wait, yeah, aren't he, you? He gives you a wait, warning, wait. and then he starts shooting. Yeah, Richie, aren't you trespassing when you go to Jura's city? That's right, you are. Um. Well, is it Dura's city, it is though? Because he's just sort of decided... He does, does he legally own Old Yarn? Well, I think the tower he's squatting on, if he's been there long enough, at least yeah. in American law, there's this doctrine called adverse possession, colloquially called squatter's rights. Uh, whereas even if someone else owns a piece of property, if you just set up shop there and treat it as your own for everybody to see for a certain period of time, usually it's like 15 or 20 years, then the property will become yours, out from under the true owner. And so if Dura's been squatting on that tower for long enough, he could be the owner of the tower, or at least the top part of it. Yeah, can he be the owner of the entire city? It, it, I don't think that would extend to the whole city. Um, well, maybe. It, it, that part of the city over which he has actually exercised dominion and control for the required period. Yeah. So if you could argue that by guarding the city with his Gatling gun, he's exercising control over those parts of the city, then... However far his Gatling gun can reach might be the area. <laughs> <laughs> and so he, if, and if he's been doing that for a long enough period of time, then 
it might be his by adverse position, as we as lawyers would say. <laughs> More common, it's like, you know, if somebody builds a fence and it encroaches like five feet on someone else's property 20 years later, the person with the fence owns that five feet, you know? Oh, really? But that's, yeah. Oh, But that's sad. much less sexy than what we're talking about. <laughs> You know, but yeah, so I think maybe, of course, the whole city's abandoned, so it's kind of anarchy, but you know, we won't worry about that. <laughs> well, that, that part of the city, anyway, is abandoned. Oh. Um, but yeah, and so, so, but you can't use deadly force, though, to defend property, so. But, well, what if the hunter comes in with, like, a saw cleaver and a gun? That doesn't necessarily mean you're at, it's like... Well, no, because first, no, no, no. First, Jura is like, please leave, Hunter. Yeah. But then right. he still walks forward with his, like, sock cleaver and a gun. Hey, screw you, Jura. I'm going to yeah. run around and kill beasts. And, and then he starts know. to kill beasts. So then Jura is actually, like, doing the self-defense, but uh, for others well, thing. Well, yeah, I was going to say, it depends on how you look at the beast patients, right? Like, if you look at them as people, and they're still people, then he's defending others. Yeah. And what he's doing is right. If you look at them as animals, then they're property, and you can't use deadly force to defend property. So, oh, are animals still property? Animals are property, and you know, under the law, animals are treated even though they're alive. They're they're movable goods, just like you know, computers and widgets. Yeah. <laughs> well, like in, in the United States, there are laws against you know abusing animals and mistreating mm-hmm. them, even though they're technically property. So, it, it, you're limited, and you can't just do whatever you want to animals. You know cruelty to animals. Matter of fact, some cities have police forces, like small police forces, dedicated to prosecuting the animal rights laws, you know, and arresting people for abusing animals. So it's not like animals are, in every sense, just property that you can do whatever you want with, but Uh for most purposes, legally, they're property, not people. Richie, are you still with us? Yeah, yeah. Why are you so quiet? I'm listening to Nick. Okay. Also, because you, you were yelling at me before, I'm, like, frightened to say anything. Because <laughs> I'll just be like, what were you saying before? Are you testing me? <laughs> well, like, am I considered your property? Yeah. Clearly. <laughs> like, not a sentient thing. Yeah. I'm just... <laughs> I'm movable goods that you get to record podcasts with you. and <laughs> I have no legal rights. Yeah. I think so. Indentured servitude is all right if you're a billion strategist. Uh... <laughs> Or involuntary servitude, I should say. <laughs> that's not false imprisonment. That's not kidnapping. That's not enslavement or trafficking. That's just the order of the day, if you're a brilliant strategist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rules don't apply to sin. Okay, so I, I now have like a legitimate weird question about animals as property, right? Rather than sentient things. Right. Because as people who, for some reason, like listen to all of these will know, my neighbor's cat has adopted me as her, like, new owner and will not leave the house right so she is like i'm not keeping her here she just runs here from their house and she like hangs around here 23 hours a day and won't leave right but like am i technically stealing their property when that happens because i don't have any control over what she does i don't think so especially if, if they seem to be acquiescing to it especially i don't think so like by they, I mean the owner, the mm-hmm. actual owner of the cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She just, she just won't leave. Like I, I used to bring her back, and she just follow me back home again. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think that's. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's not the, it's not quite the same as the classic case because, like, wi- yeah. wild animals belong to like whomever, whoever's property they're on at a given time. Yeah, but this is not the the cat has an identifiable owner. But if they're acquiescing yeah. to the cat coming over and you doing whatever, that's fine. I think. Yeah. 
But if they call you up and say, we don't want the cat coming over there anymore, then that may put some onus on you to kind of make sure the cat gets back over there. But as long as the owner seems to be acquiescing to it, it's fine. Well, they, they don't seem to like her very much. So I think... Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you may be caring for an otherwise neglected animal, which is great. Oh! Which is great, you know. That's awesome. I, I love cats. They're like my fa- one of my favorite animals. So that, that's mm. actually kind of cool. Yeah. Richie is a kind soul. He is indeed. Yeah. That's why it's so easy to scream at him and push him around. Yeah. Please don't hurt me again. <laughs> no, I don't even say that. I'm just like, okay. <laughs> like Eeyore, thanks for noticing me. Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh I love it. <laughs> well, yeah, so that's the thing with your. It depends on how you, whether the beasts are animals or. <laughs> They were people, clearly. <laughs> uh-huh. Honestly, I think in real life, if someone like trans were to transmute into another being, they'd still be considered people for purposes of the legal system. It's like, you know, once you're a person, you're a person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's like, let's say you stumble upon some nuclear waste and you devolve into this gelatinous o- organism that, that's still alive. The, the law will still deem you a person, but you've just been afflicted with the condition that's deprived you of your faculty. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know? But you're still a person. Oh. Well, does it work the other way around if you ascend to become a new, like, a god species of, like, psychic creature? Then, you know, technically, I think you'd still be viewed as a person, but at that point, I think you'd be effectively beyond human yeah. legal jurisdiction. <laughs> you know? yeah, this is this is turning into, like, like, an Alan Moore comic or something, anyway. <laughs> the red moon is out, and the boundary between law and philosophy is being blurred. <laughs> okay, here's, here's another question, yeah. right? We kill Rom, yep. which is what causes the Red Moon to appear. So everything that happens our fault. after that point in the game is technically our fault. It is indeed. But we also didn't know that would happen. I'm, I'm overgeneralizing because I would spend hours explaining this stuff to law students. Um, but basically, in tort or criminal law, you're responsible for what you cause, right? What about for what you cause? <laughs> or some say cause. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And there, there are two types of causation in the law. There's actual cause and what we call proximate cause. Um, and actual cause is like, you know, your standard physicist or philosopher's conception of causation, you know. If, you know, the result would not have happened but for your actions. That's actual cause, right? Uh-huh. Uh, your, your actions somehow contributed to the event taking place, and the event would not have taken place without your action. Uh, it gets more complicated than that, but that'll suffice, I think, for this. And well, proximate cause it, it sort of looks at how closely connected your action is with the event. Like basically, it boils down to again reasonable foreseeability. Like if you, if a reasonable person in your position ought to have foreseen this, then you'll be deemed to have proximately caused it, and you can be held responsible for it. But if no one in your position could have foreseen this or anything uh-huh. like it, then you might not be responsible for it. So I think. I think we're guilty of murder when it comes to Rom because she's just sitting there chilling, and yeah. we come into her, That's true. we come into her house and we kill her for no apparent reason. <laughs> so I think uh, it's just as if you'd gone into someone's house and, and murdered them, you know. No, no, um, Nick. But wait, what if the only way to leave uh, causes Arena is to kill her? Hmm. Well, one might one might argue you shouldn't have gone in in the first place, except Willem was because you had no idea though when you went. What in, if you so just you wanted to? Like, what if you yeah. fell? You know, it wasn't on purpose. Yeah, yeah. So the only way to leave, well, at that point, I think you'd still be held responsible for homicide because it's not Rom's fault either. You know, 
She didn't do anything. She wasn't trying to attack you. She's just sitting there minding your own business. When you attack her, she acts in self-defense. Uh-huh. So I, I think that you'd still be responsible for homicide, but I think that you'd be shown some leniency because of the circumstances. Like a real a real life example, and this is maybe the single most interesting legal case that has ever been brought. It's it. I think it it was an English case, and I think Queen Victoria was reigning at the time. And these guys were out on a ship, right? Um, but they were stranded in the ocean. They were out of food. Oh no! And they were, and they were starving, right? Yeah. And so eventually, there were three of them, right? They were these three guys. They're at sea. They're stranded at sea. They're out of food. Yeah. They're starving. They're desperate. And so two of the three decide to kill the third guy and eat him from starving. Yeah. And so that's what happens. Uh, they, the guy's in his bunk, you know, wishing he had some food. Uh-huh. And the other two guys come there. And one guy, uh, this is, it actually happens in the case. One guy ominously says, it is time. And then they kill him oh, wow. <laughs> and eat him. Damn. And so when they get back, they're prosecuted for homicide, right? Mm-hmm. And they, of course, they try to raise the fact that they're desperate and hungry as, as a defense, like a duress type. Um, but the judge is like, no, no, you, you knew what you were doing. You murdered this man. He hadn't done anything to you. Uh-huh. Uh, so you're responsible for homicide. But then the queen stepped in and commuted their sentence to like six months imprisonment because of the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Because they were desperate and hungry and they might have actually starved to death if they hadn't killed the guy. So I think something like that would happen. Uh, like you'd be technically convicted of some kind of homicide crime, but you'd be shown some type of leniency because of the circumstances. Like it was the only you'd be trapped there for eternity if you didn't kill Rom to get out. You know. Uh-huh. So that's what would happen. You'd be in trouble, but not as much trouble. <laughs> uh huh. Interesting. Yeah. So how how did diff- obviously we've talked about like American law versus Canadian law versus English law? How would you figure out what law would govern the Dreamlands? Uh, well, the only logical way, I think, to approach it might to be that the game originated in Japan, so Japanese law would... <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, apart from that, you know, the, the the whole place seems pretty lawless, and the only you know, government of any kind is the healing church. And so I guess, he, you know, healing church dictate number, you know, X5134 might, you know, <laughs> might govern. Um, or, you know, vicar, dictate, whatever. Because like, when Hitler was in power, like, his, his executive orders were called, like, Fuhrer Directive number 123. So it'd be like, you know, vicar directive number one. Oh. Yeah. So, but yeah, so, but yeah, the, the only logical thing, I guess, would be Japanese. Because Miyazaki's Japanese, so what the heck, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and as Miyazaki himself would say, you know, that's one interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> the law would be very open to interpretation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Okay, he's got an, I've got a healing church law theory, right? Because <laughs> we know the healing church, right? They're called a healing church, but if you look at them, they actually behave like like a medical institution. They're not actually a church. Right. So do you think they are just a medical institution and they call themselves a church for tax reasons? <laughs> <laughs> you, know, I, well, you know, a medical institution can also be a non-profit. Um, ah, I see. But you see, a religious institution has an advantage, and I, I used to practice tax, so I know a little something about this. Um, yeah, I represented a lot of people who didn't pay the taxes. But anyway, that's another matter. <laughs> <laughs> and had no real, no good reason not to pay their taxes. <laughs> but, <laughs> so I, I tried to broker a deal with the IRS or the state authorities. But anyway, that's that's a complete tangent. Uh, but yeah. If you're a religious institution, you have one advantage over your standard nonprofit, and it's basically if, if you meet the definition of clergy, and your employer provides housing for you, that's tax-free to you. 
Um, like classic example is like, you know, pastor of a church gets a parsonage from the church, right? To live in. Right. And that's, that's the, the fair rental value of the parsonage is not deemed taxable income to the, uh, to the minister. And so now a, a, any other employer could do something like that, but you have to show a tighter connection between like they're being provided housing because the employer needs them to live on site, you know? And the church doesn't this so like yeah uh, Maria living in the clock yeah I mean if if you can sh- she's got to live on site yeah yeah if, if like the research hall can show that sh- they need her to live there then it wouldn't be taxable income to her because she's living there for the employer's sake but like do you think that's the idea behind the hunter's dream uh you know yeah I think that's a tax free to Garman yeah because the moon presence yeah. needs <laughs> Garman to be there all the time <laughs> you know yeah. so I don't think uh, Garman has to pay tax on the fair rental value of the the hunter's dream. Hit whatever little bed he sleeps in in the dream. <laughs> Does he even have a bed? Mm. I I think he sleeps in his chair. Yeah. Like he's stuck in that chair until he's ready to kill you and then he gets up. Um. Yeah. Of course, he's trying to kill you for your own benefit, ironically, but that's another one. Yeah, I was going to bring that up later on. That's a very odd situation. It, it is kind of a bizarre situation. Um, but yeah, I was, but yeah, but like if you're a religious institution and you're like you're the, a clergyman, you don't have to show that connection with the employer's needs. The church can just give you a house, and it, you don't have to show that it's necessary for the church to have you live on site or live in the parsonage. Because yeah, many parsonages are off-site, and the preachers will still commute to church you know, to, to preach or whatever. So it's like you don't have to show that connection with the employer's needs to get, the, to get it tax-free. It's just you're clergy, therefore you get the housing tax-free. Um, or whatever institution, or church or a synagogue or mosque or whatever it is, decides to provide it for you, you know. Like historically, it was a Christian thing, but it's been expanded. You know, any minister of any any recognized minister of any you know reasonably established religion can claim the benefit if the you know if the religious institution decides to provide the housing. Anyway, that was totally irrelevant to anything, I guess. But that's one advantage. I was going to say that's uh, that was that would be one advantage for the healing church to present itself as a religious institution, so that the vicar can get mm. tax free housing. <laughs> <laughs> So Vicar Amelia's, you know, sleeping in the Grand Cathedral and she's not paying tax on the rental. <laughs> <laughs> talking about blood and the frailty of man or whatever he's talking about. Yeah. Well, so what, what is like the minimum you need to do to present yourself as a religious institution? I, it, it's, it's often debated. It is, it, you know, yeah. Like, uh, ideally, it'd be like a mainstream, well-established type of religion, but I think it, it may suffice if, you know, there's a, an institution that appears to believe a set of things in good faith and, you know, they, they congregate regularly, they've got the finances, they provide their, you know, their clergy with housing. I think it would probably, you know, even if it's kind of a loosely organized type of thing, as long as there's some semblance of organization and some good faith belief in a set of, you know, spiritual ideals, uh, I think it'll suffice. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, I think they could probably get away with that. Yeah. Because I mean, you just—it's yeah. not like you're drawing distinctions, you know. Like it works for some religions and not others. You just have to show that it is a religion, you know, and that this is a clergyman or a clergywoman in the religion, and that we're giving her housing, you know. So yeah, it, it's it's it, it may because you know some institutions are more loosely organized than others, but as long as there's some semblance of organization, some good faith spiritual belief, I think it works. You know, as long as it's not a sham, <laughs> you know, to get free housing <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I started a religion oh. so I could get tax-free housing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Richie, you wanted to ask about German? 
No, we, we did. We were just talking about, like, the moon person's needs and to live on. Oh, no, no. Okay. The German question is right. He tries to kill you in a dream. Yep. But that is for your own good, because when he kills you, you'll be free from the dream. Right. And the moon presence won't so, take you and captivate you. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what would, how does that work? Because he is, like, he is inflicting, he's assaulting you. Right. But it's the only way to free you. Yeah. I think that um, the, like, the, to do violence for defense of others, like, the other person has to be in like, imminent danger of bodily harm. And I, I'm not sure that applies here strictly. Uh, but you know, the moon presence does rip your leg off. Yeah, that's true. You know, I well yeah. then I think then that because Garman knows that you, I guess you're just about to be captivated by the moon presence, and you're just about yeah. to have your leg ripped off. So it's like, well, you could use force to defend somebody from being kidnapped too. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, you, yeah, that's what he's doing. In fact, if it's outright kidnapping, you can use deadly force to defend somebody from kidnapping if you have reason reason to believe that the kidnapping is imminent, because. Because a kidnapping is what's called an inherently dangerous felony, and for self-defense purposes, those are treated pretty much like an imminent homicide. Um, it's like rape, robbery, arson, kidnapping, and burglary. I think, yeah, rape, robbery, arson, kidnapping, and burglary are all sort of like classic inherently dangerous felonies, and you can kill someone to prevent one of those crimes from happening as long as it's in progress or imminent. So yeah, the moon presence is just about to sort of captivate you and rip off your leg, and so if, if Garmin can show that that's imminent, and that he's attacking you to prevent that, then I think he might have a defense of others defense, and not be held liable in tort or as a matter of criminal law. But now, given the fantasy context, it's kind of a weird showing. that Garmin would have to show how he knows what the moon presence is about to do, and you may have to subpoena the moon presence to testify. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I think Flora is a bit finicky about when she appears, so good luck. <laughs> okay, let's say you did want the moon presence to appear in court. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, the only way to do it was to get the three third cords and summon her under the red moon. Yeah. Yeah, like, how how much effort can you actually go to to, like, subpoena the moon presence? Well, you know, if, if the court decides that summon, you know, it's not reasonably practical to summon the moon presence, and they would just make do without her. <laughs> but if her testimony were absolutely necessary, and you couldn't practically summon her, then the case might have to be dismissed. Because I, I remember in the 90s in Australia, we had this uh, criminal businessman who ripped off a whole lot of people, and then he, he disappeared to Mallorca and claimed he couldn't leave for health reasons. Uh-huh. Well, that- and there was a... I think they deemed like it wasn't absolute... Like, yeah. I'm just thinking maybe it it would be something like that. Like, was he tried in absentia? Uh, I don't know. He he eventually died. Okay. Well, then he got what was coming to him eventually, I guess. Uh, <laughs> he's trapped in the hunter's nightmare now. <laughs> he, you know, he, you know that guy you you kill for the blood echoes right before you get to Ludwig. That's him. Yeah, that's him, right? That's him. <laughs> that's Christopher's case. Yep. That's his punishment. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> So, do you think maybe there is like a, a, a like there is a court system or whatever in in Yarnum, and there are like lawyers and judges and everything. And once you found guilty, you just sent off to the hunter's nightmare. But we just don't see it because it's another part of town where we don't have access to. Well, it's kind of like uh, what is it, Rikers Island in New York City? Like you're just sent there, and it's it's, its own isolated place, and then you're yeah. forgotten about. You know. Oh, that that brings up a question about the prison they have there. Ah. Because, like, those hunters are locked up in that prison, but they're locked up there because presumably they're blood drunk. Right. Right. 
Well, and then you've got Braidol locked up in there, and he's but he's there willingly. Well, if he's there willingly, there's no legal issue as yeah. long as he consents to it. What about right? Braidor is there, and then he he invades you as like a red spirit, right? So, but the red spirit that invades you is slightly different. It's like a younger version of Braidor. <laughs> and also, he also knows that if he kills you, you will wake up again. Right. Right. It's a very complicated situation. It is. These would make some pretty good law exam hypotheticals. <laughs> uh, you'd, have some, you'd have some bemused law students, but that's okay. Uh, that happens all the time. <laughs> I think that it's not homicide because he knows he's not going to kill you finally and forever. Um, but I think it is pretty clearly assault and battery. Because um, yeah. he's attacking you unprovoked, and there's you know, no reason to believe that he's defending his own property or whatever. He's just there kind of hanging out. Uh, no, no. What if he's defending the fishing hamlet? But that's not his prop. Oh, here's, here's a really good question. Okay. Say you, you're Braidor and you astrally project somewhere. Yep. How long do you have to have astrally projected somewhere before you granted squatters' rights? I see. Well, because your body would be in two different places. Yep, but well, you, you don't necessarily have to be bodily present on the property. You just have to exercise. Well, you have to be present. Oh, okay. You have to be present, but not continuously. And I think astral projection would count as physical presence because it's right. it's functionally the same. Yep. So it's like so you know yeah so you know how we joke about Mikolash is like oh you go into his house and this but you literally go into his house <laughs> and kill him because yeah, he was he, there for a while would, he would he'd own that nightmare by now yeah. Exactly. Well, he's been there, by all indications, he's been there long enough for his body to wither and decay. Yeah. You know, so I think uh-huh. he, at least over that area within the little temple where you go to fight him or the castle or whatever, he probably would have squatters' rights. Maybe not over the outskirts where he doesn't exercise any control, unless he does. Um, it's kind of murky, but yeah, over that, where anywhere you see a marionette, you know, I think he might have squatters' rights, yeah. So, in the most literal sense, we're trespassing on someone's property and killing them. You are, yeah. Yeah. And Oh my god. By all indications, you have no idea, really not much of a clue that he's trying to, you know, speck and cause and as a consequence of which he'll kind of wipe everybody out with the red moon. <laughs> mm. And, and yeah. he doesn't even attack us. He just runs away yeah. from us. Yeah, he literally he only attacks runs us away. when we corner him. Yeah. 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 But here's the thing, though. At least in, in tort, and maybe in criminal law, well, more in, there's a doctrine called public necessity. It's like, if you know that if you don't kill this fool, he's going to turn everyone into a beast and everyone's going to die, then you might have justification to kill him because you're preventing a public disaster from taking place. But that's if you know. <laughs> and you know, the, lore, the lore is pretty inscrutable. At least the first time you play through, you're like, what the heck is going on? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe you, you, if you know that there's this disaster coming, if you don't kill this guy, you might be justified but otherwise yeah you're you're trespassing and, and killing somebody <laughs> but wait yeah but even in lore terms if we don't kill mikolash what happens nothing happens no exactly because the red moon's already happened yeah yeah by that he point. has nothing to do like, with it he's in his nightmare being happy in his castle like, kill, kill but he yeah he did kidnap a baby though ah uh, see yeah you can yeah you might yeah if you're trying to rescue someone from kidnapping then i don't know it's Private well, see, the thing is, we we kind of don't know that's happened, right? Until I guess you, if you like, were paying really close attention, you might realize that he's got Mergo. But I think most people probably didn't realize what was going on until the very end. Yeah. So yeah. I guess like 
can you claim that it was okay if you figured out like retroactively you were doing the right? Thing? I don't think so. No, you you have to know mm-hmm. what's happening at the time you do it. You do. Um, oh really? Like at oh. the time you do it, you have to know that. Let's say classic self defense. You have to know that someone's either attacking you or someone else, and it's ongoing at the moment. Um, because you're judged based on what you reasonably perceived at the time. It's not evaluated in hindsight. You know. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I think we're in trouble. Uh, it seems because yeah. like yeah, killing Mikolaj doesn't get rid of the Red Moon. Freeing Murgo doesn't okay. get rid of the Red Moon. It would, at least in terms of well, the gameplay. Okay, but let's say I kill Mikolaj and then I proceed in the game and I kill the wet nurse and everything, and then I realize, like eventually, like oh my god, Mikolaj kidnapped this baby. So what I was doing may be considered like. Like, what if I lie? What if I'm like, oh, I knew it all along. That's why I went there, to save Mergo. Do you think that's that's what a lot of, like, this law discussion really is? It's just us pretending we knew all along why we did things. <laughs> really, we had no idea. <laughs> like, the hunter's just, like, in a daze the whole time, going from one inexplicable event to the next, and really not knowing what's <laughs> yeah. going on. Yeah. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm, I feel like the, I think the fourth Hellraiser movie is a lot like that. Like, the main character is just... <laughs> It's just at the end you find out the main character has died and gone to hell, but before that, it's like he's going from yeah. one inexplicable event to the next, trying to figure things out, and the audience is kind of carried along with him. And you've yeah. seen the previous is that a common legal thing, the Hellraiser Four defense. It, it should. <laughs> it's like I had no idea what was happening. I was just carried along as if someone were writing a story for me. <laughs> Uh-huh. Uh huh. But yeah, yeah, we'd have to rely on the Hellraiser Four defense, and as far as I know, that's never worked. Sleepwalking defense has worked. Um. Oh well, well hang on a minute, because this, like, one of the theories that people had about Yanim is like, is the whole game a dream? Right. So, could you claim that you were technically sleepwalking through the entire event of the narrative, like everything that happened? Well, in real life, the sleepwalking defense has succeeded, people. Um, it's. Right. You have kind of a high bar of skepticism to overcome. But like uh-huh. basically what ha- to be held responsible criminally or in tort you have to commit an act. And an act is a voluntary bodily movement, right? Or right. or an omission if you're under a legal duty to act. But that's nuances for law students. We don't need to get into that here. Um and if, so if it's not a vo- basically if it's not a conscious bodily movement, you can't be held responsible for it, right? So sleepwalking is not a conscious bodily movement. Your body's autonomous, effectively, at that point. So, you know, people have you know killed others in their sleep and successfully argued that, hey, I was sleepwalking. I'm sorry, can't be held responsible. And they got in terms of criminal liability, they got off. I mean, in real life, this has happened. So, I, mean, I don't know. That wouldn't be my first resort for a defense. But if if it was all I had, you know, I'd make the best. <laughs> and some lawyers have been able to do it. And professionally, I admire that, even if. Even if you're a bit skeptical about whether it's actually true, you know? uh-huh. but yeah, so it might might work if you could establish that you know you were sort of in this sleepwalking haze the whole time and weren't really in control. Then yeah, it might work. Well, German does say you're sure to be in a fine haze about. That. He does. Yeah, you try not to think too hard about it. Just go kill a few beasts. <laughs> <laughs> it's for your own good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and as it turns out, it is because <laughs> that's how you get stronger. But yeah, whatever. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, you know how we were talking about property? Yeah. Versus, like, uh, I guess sentient beings or whatever? Mm-hmm. Or versus humans? The doll, which would she fall under? Ah, see, it's a good question. Uh, because she has a. Well, the human legal system hasn't really encountered anything like this yet. 
But if it were to, yes. Yes. What, what you would, what you would have, I think, is that um, you have one doll who's sentient. I think at first she wouldn't really have any rights because no one has decided that sentient dolls have rights, and so there's no been no provision made in the legal system for it. Um, but you have one doll who is sentient. She wouldn't technically have any rights, but then you'd have more dolls, and then they would band together and march and protest for civil rights, and eventually they would be granted. What about the Winter Lanterns? I, we should just kill those and not worry about them anymore. I mean, this, <laughs> oh, I hate the Winter Lanterns. With like, Okay, okay here's, here's another question, right? Yeah. Winter Lanterns and the Mensa's brain, they kill everything around them just by, like, proxy. Yeah. So are they responsible if you just die of frenzy from being around one? Well, the I mean, it looks like they can kind of control it, though, right? Like, I don't. It, it kind of can, yeah. And so, it, yeah. Yeah, if they can control it, then yeah, I think they're responsible because that. that yeah. But let's say they can't. Well, if they can't, then in terms of criminal liability, you know, if they get conscious bodily movement, meaning a bodily movement you can control. I don't know that they'd be directly responsible. But here's the thing: it's like, let's say you're prone to seizures and you know it. You shouldn't drive a car because you know at any point you could go unconscious and hurt someone, right? So if you know you're prone to seizures and you get out and drive anyway, and you have a seizure and wreck and kill someone, you're responsible because you knew that might happen. Uh-huh. So the winter, winter lanterns are running around knowing that at any point they can frenzy and kill someone, so they have a kind of a responsibility to take measures to prevent that. You know, like, sequester themselves. Okay. You know. But what if they don't know? Well, if they somehow don't know, then I don't suppose they could be held responsible for it. But it seems pretty clear that you have all these corpses with all these frenzy spears in them. <laughs> like, oh. What if th- what if they're like Yorshka? They don't understand life. Oh, know? they're just stupid. <laughs> oh. that a bird or some winged thing? And you say yes. <laughs> oh, I thought so. <laughs> <laughs> that is a perfect Yorshka impression. <laughs> Oh, yeah. It's, it, it, to paraphrase, she's like, oh, how'd you get up here? You know, the bridge to the tower's been long abandoned. Oh, that a bird or some winged thing? And and I always say yes, just because it's amusing. <laughs> like, if you say no, she'll confess to being kind of stupid. Oh. <laughs> but if you say yes, she'll be like, oh, to paraphrase, oh, I thought so. That's pretty cool. Because <laughs> I can't remember her exact dialogue, but it's something like that. I'm like, wow. You're the head of the Blades of the Dark Moon? <laughs> At least Gwendolyn was not an idiot. <laughs> okay, because we've because we've crossed over into Dark Souls three, right? Yeah. Could like Pontiff Sullivan, right, was supposed to be the villain, ended up being a mid boss who's not really explained. Could he sue from software? Ah, well, see, here's the thing. M- maybe like, well. Uh- I'm always careful about saying who can sue, because anybody can sue anybody for anything. Yeah. Whether it'll succeed is another matter. That's not anything on you. It's just, if I were talking to law students, if you, when I teach people legal writing, I like you know I harp on that, because it, you know, whatever. But yeah, I think could, what you meant was, could they successfully sue? And I think maybe. Yes. Um, because like if, basically, if, if From Software set the expectation that Pontiff Sullivan would be like the main antagonist, and he entered into the transaction with that reasonable expectation, and then they all of a sudden demoted him to this mid-game boss slash, you know, like you said, Machiavellian genius who's responsible for everything. Um, I think he might be able to sue, you know, for breach of contract or something akin to it. 
uh, and prevail. Uh, from if he again, if he entered the arrangement, decided to be in the game with the reasonable expectation of being, you know, final boss, you know, the main boss. Um, so yeah, I think uh, you know maybe Miyazaki better hire himself a lawyer somewhere in Lothric and get ready for a lawsuit because <laughs> <laughs> you've been demoted to <laughs> mid-level boss. Okay, so we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes, and I think we can wrap it up for now. And if people found this interesting, we can have another one. <laughs> do, do you think uh, Patreon supporters could sue you? For, like, <laughs> <laughs> the continued deterioration of this show. Well, I, think, I think she makes the expectations clear, right? You get nothing and you might get banned from Discord. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> It's very clear that you're getting shit content from Patreon. <laughs> content no one should ever see. Sin, sin talking to a bunny. <laughs> yeah, and it's all labeled like every YouTube video. There's a there's a name and a duration. Like Richie talking like a cat for two minutes. You know, well, I'm, I'm glad to know that Nick has now told me that that, that feral cat is my property because it lives <laughs> under a tree in the garden. Well, at the very least, you're not doing anything wrong by t- you know. T- I, I think it's, it still belongs to the owner, but as long as they acquiesce... Oh, no, then, that's another yeah. one. This is a different cat. Yeah. Oh! <laughs> Richie has many oh, cats. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, there's one cat that belongs to the people next door right. that has adopted me and won't leave. And then there's one that's just a feral. Oh, if it's a wild cat, then as long as it's on your yeah. property, yeah, it's yours. Yeah, okay. Good, it's legally my cat now. Okay. Yeah. And then, then if you take it in and as your pet and effectively adopt it, then there's an argument to be made that it's not wild anymore and it's yours wherever it might go until someone else, you know... Aww. Effectively exercise the squatter's rights over the cat. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, yeah, we're going to wrap it up. And like I said, if people like this or they have more questions for Nick in terms of the Soulsborne universe, we could have another one. I can't imagine anyone acting about asking about the legal implications of all this stuff, but I'm happy to be on standby to answer if anyone does. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. So yeah, Nick, thank you so much for coming. Anytime. It was a blast, as always. Uh, are you going to send us a bill for this consultation later on? You know, the first consultation. So. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you also have a YouTube channel as well as a Twitter. Oh, yes, that's right. Both under the name Cinder Thief. C-Y-N-D-R space Thief. Uh, mm-hmm. You have a lot of really cool streams and PvP content and boss fighting content and things yeah, like that. Hudless boss fights. Hudless boss fights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. those I, are impressive. Yeah, some are hudless, some aren't. But yeah, I've, I've recently made a playlist for all the hudless stuff, so it's easier to find because apparently people like that. So. Yeah, no, it's really cool. The reason I started making hudless videos was just so that you could use them, like for videos. Yeah, Richie, did I tell you? Because Nick was like, "Oh, you know, I record so soon. Is there something you need? I could record yeah, it for you, you." Yeah, you did tell. Yeah. Yeah, but at first it was like when Nick asked me. I think at first I was like, "Oh yeah, cool, that would be great." Then it's like, "Oh, could you like not twitch around with the camera and make it smooth?" Oh, also, could you not have a HUD when you do that? Oh, also. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it looks more cinematic without the hood, I guess. So that makes sense. Yeah, that's what I. No, I. That's why, like before, when I was emptying the recycling bin, it's because I just did a complete hudless like playthrough. Oh man, it's all in HD, so it's like yeah. Oh my god, there's a lot oh, of yeah. space taken up by that thing. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, why did you yeah. do that, Richie? Because I am putting together different videos, and I wanted everything to look consistent. So I'm not zooming in on 480p footage from three years ago anymore. Oh, does it mean we might see a video from you soon? 
Oh no! 